At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goizueta Business School, and your host. Today I'll be joined by Jill Perry-Smith. When CEOs are asked, what is the skill you most value in your people? Time and again, creativity, problem solving, and innovation top their lists. However, according to AdAge, 75% of people believe they are not living up to their creative potential. How can workplaces, managers, and industries encourage and harness creativity and innovation, supporting the journey of an idea from mind to marketplace? Jill is a professor of organization and management at Emory University's Goizueta Business School. For nearly 20 years, she has researched creativity and innovation. She received her PhD in organizational behavior from the College of Management at the Georgia Institute of Technology, has consulted numerous Fortune 100 companies, and has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, CNN, and Fast Company. Welcome, Jill. Thank you, happy to be here. Great. Well, you have studied creativity and innovation for nearly 20 years, so let's start with the basics. What interests you in this field, and why do you feel it's an important area of study? Fundamentally, I think creativity is essential. I think everybody needs it at every level of the organization. You know, when you think about solving those really complex problems that allow a company to thrive and continue to grow, those often require creativity. Yet interestingly, although it's fundamental and everyone wants creativity, I think most of us don't really know exactly how to be creative or foster creativity among those who work for us. So while it's desirable and fundamental, I think it's really difficult to achieve. So that's why I was attracted to study it from the beginning uh, and why I continue to think it's a vibrant area of study. So you you talk about um, creativity being an area that that folks don't necessarily know how to cultivate sometimes. Do you, do you feel creativity can be learned? Absolutely. It's that fundamental debate of uh, leaders, are they born or are they made? And with creativity, I think, yes, there are some people who are innately creative, who are drawn to very creative fields and sort of have a knack for coming up with these wildly creative and effective solutions. But for the most part, um, most of us are working in fields that we didn't go into because we're creative, but we're forced with situations that require creativity to solve. And I think there are a lot of things that we can think about in organizations that naturally stifle creativity. But the flip side is we can think about processes, structures, leadership, that can encourage creativity for everyone. So the idea being, you know, if if we think about our baseline level of creativity, whatever that might be, Mm -hmm. how can we take that up a level? And essentially, how can we avoid, you know, the unintended consequences of muted creativity Mm -hmm. uh, because of other goals and objectives uh, within a firm? So absolutely, I think we can 
we can cultivate, develop, and allow everyone to be more creative than they otherwise would be. In a recent TED Talk, you shared that when people hear the word creativity, they often think of artistic expression. However, creativity takes many forms. Can you talk about different examples of creativity and why organizations and individuals stand to benefit from a broader definition? Of course, when we think creativity, we think of artistic expression. Um, at the same time, when we think about uh, what happens in companies, we think about product breakthroughs, of course. You know, that's the first kind of innovation or creativity that probably comes to mind, and that's very fundamental and important. So we need those new products. Uh, we need those new inventions. Um, the other kind is problem solving. At the heart of it, creativity is about problem solving. And so when we have a really difficult problem or challenge, when we have constraints that uh, cause us to not be able to go down the obvious path, that's when we need creativity to figure out uh, how to, to solve those problems. So when we think about entrepreneurship, uh, what's valuable there is the ability to spot, develop, and understand some opportunity in the marketplace that others have not identified. And so that's another kind of creativity that's that's really important and uh, valuable. So mm -hmm. creativity, particularly when we think about uh, what happens in companies and businesses, is much broader than the artistic creativity that I think sometimes uh, makes people think, well, I'm not very creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you talked a little bit about novel ideas. So part of creativity is generating those truly novel ideas and pushing them from mind to marketplace. And despite the hundreds of thousands of ideas that originate each year, many truly novel ideas either stall out in development or lose their originality along the way. Can you speak to some of the factors that innovators are working against? One fundamental way of thinking about the idea journey is, is thinking about the different phases that an idea goes through from the time the idea is birthed in the creator's mind to the time when the idea is implemented and is changing the field. You know, ideally, we'd love to think about uh, that creative idea being something that changes the way people work or operate or changes something fundamental about the business. So there's a long journey uh, from, you know, the idea in the shower, if you will, to when this idea is really changing the way people uh, work. And so each phase is very unique and has different needs and requirements. And so instead of an idea progressing linearly um, through these phases, which would be beautiful, um, what often happens is, is these ideas have a bumpy journey. Um, they cycle backwards, they loop backwards. Uh, creators either get um, less confident in their idea, uh, less willing to take the risk and, and put it forward, and have to deal with lots of feedback and input uh, from others along the way. So sometimes what happens is the novelty gets snuffed out of the essence of the idea. And so then what we could have happening in that case is we can have these you know, very standard state ideas, the ideas that actually make it through the idea journey. And then we're leaving on the table, you know, these really creative nuggets that might be 
difficult to evaluate, maybe risky to put forward because there's no precedent, but have really tremendous upside potentials. You talked a little bit about the phases that uh, an idea goes through, this journey of an idea. Can you give us a little taste about those different phases and then we'll get deeper into the types of support that you need to employ for each of those phases? I see the, the journey as quite complex. In order to understand it and understand how to tackle it and successfully help an idea make it through, we boil the journey down into four phases. So at the start, there's the generation of an idea. Uh, So this, of of course, is when the concept is born, when uh, the creator gets this concept uh, in his or her mind, that's generation. From there, it's required to elaborate on the idea. So generation, really, the way I think about it is is a nugget of an idea, a concept. Mm -hmm. So then once this concept uh, is there, then we've got to flesh it out a little bit, um, develop it to the extent that we can share it with gatekeepers, for example, within the field or others that we might want to uh, get input on the idea. So in some fields, this may be a prototype. Um, in other fields, this may be a storyboard. You know, there are lots of ways of thinking about this elaborated idea. So once the idea is elaborated, uh, then we think about the promotion phase. Uh, so this is the phase when one desires a green light of some sort to go forward and execute and implement the idea. Um, so that can involve Uh, selling the idea, getting approval, getting resources. Uh, Resources can include political cover uh, to develop the idea at the next uh, implementation stage. Implementation is about execution. Uh, It's it's realizing the idea at that point. So it can involve uh, more detailed development. So going from, for example, a prototype to something more specific that can be used as a blueprint of sorts to uh, create the idea. Uh, And then actually making it uh, happening and and putting it out there. So those are the four four phases uh, in some generate the idea, birth it uh, in the creator's mind, elaborate, uh, go forward with developing it, the idea, uh, flesh it out, see if it if it seems to be viable, then promote it, seek resources to execute the idea. And then lastly is execution uh, of that idea. As an idea progresses from phase to phase, collaboration requirements change. Can you discuss why the support systems that you cultivate can translate to failure or success. So each phase is highly unique and has different needs in order to optimize success. Sometimes uh, we don't really know what we need and what we want isn't always what's best to be successful across those phases. We tend to form collaborative habits. Um, particularly when it comes to people we're very comfortable with, people we know well, we tend to over-anchor on, on those individuals. And those kinds of relationships aren't uniformly beneficial uh, for creativity across these phases. So the collaborative needs change, yet we may tend to overemphasize one type of collaborative approach depending on what we're accustomed to. Uh, so for example, we may over-rely on teams Uh, even though teams may not be helpful 
across the different phases. We may over rely on people that we know well, uh, that we talk to often, even though those individuals may not be helpful for us uniformly across all the phases. And the other issue is that creativity is risky. Uh, it's risky sometimes for the person putting forward the idea, um, because when you think about it, because an idea is creative, that means it's something that hasn't been done before. There's perhaps not a lot of precedent for evaluating the idea. And so that risk keeps us from uh, fully doing the things that, that we would need to do to be optimal and instead rely on uh, what's comfortable. So the idea that, that the needs change uh, as the idea progresses along the journey, and that as humans, we tend to um, stick with what's comfortable, uh, what we've done previously, as opposed to being flexible and adaptable with our collaborative approaches. Uh, so those are the reasons why the collaborative requirements change and why we end up sometimes getting stuck in one phase. So, so let's go through each phase and talk about the collaborative needs that best support them. As you mentioned, the first phase is idea generation. What should innovators seek out at this point in their journey? During the generation phase, innovators need inspiration and an open mind. And from a collaborative perspective, uh, what is most likely to yield that is the stranger. Uh, so conversations with strangers or people we don't know well are ideal during this phase to provide new perspectives. Uh, so when you think about it, People that we're close to that we know well tend to be like us in some way. We're very familiar with their perspective, their orientation, what they're likely to say. So it's the stranger or acquaintance that's likely to say something new and unexpected. The, the second element uh, with strangers or acquaintances that I think is quite fascinating is we pay more attention to novel insights that we get from people we don't know well than people we do know well. And this is counterintuitive. So in some of my work, when I've asked participants, you know, what advice is most helpful, they will say the advice from people they know well is the most helpful advice. But the data shows that their conversations and input with people that they don't know well facilitates their creativity and stimulates their um, novel problem solving. So we are more likely to get novel insights from people we don't know well, but we're more likely to pay attention to those novel insights. I think the easiest way to think about this, we've probably all experienced this in our lives uh, with our spouses, with our children. Uh, we make suggestions, uh, give them advice on something they should do, and then they hear it from someone else and suddenly it's the best advice that they've ever heard. And they don't recognize that um, perhaps we've been giving them that same advice. So when someone different gives that advice, it gets attention and consideration more, which really facilitates uh, generating creative ideas. Interestingly, friends are, are valuable in other phases and are valuable for lots of different reasons. Um, friends are supportive, uh, but sometimes they're too supportive. Uh, so we found, for example, that uh, because friends tend to be encouraging, uh, we see people going forward with uncreative ideas. Uh, so friends are more likely to say, oh, that's great. You know, maybe you can tweak it in a slightly different way, um, support and encourage. And then we see that creators will go forward with ideas, even if those ideas aren't very novel. 
So that's the downside of friends uh, during this generation phase. So for generation, we need acquaintances or strangers, people we don't know well. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the second phase, elaboration. What are the core collaborative needs of this phase and what role should or should not managers play? During elaboration, uh, creators need support and encouragement to go forward with and develop their kind of wacky, crazy ideas. It's risky. Um, so oftentimes creators, uh, even those who self-describe themselves as being creative, have doubts. So friends here are helpful. So we're seeing a shift. Uh, strangers and acquaintances uh, during generation. When we get to elaboration, we need friends, uh, what I like to call creative confidants. These are people who uh, ideally aren't necessarily immersed in the work. Um, they can be, uh, but can provide some developmental suggestions and thoughts such that the creator can go forward. Ideally, uh, this kind of creative confidant or, or support person will not be a manager. Uh, managers aren't the best at spotting creative ideas. Peers tend to be better. And also managers, uh, even if unintentionally, can provide an element of evaluation. And this can kind of stifle the likelihood of going forward with an idea. So at this point, the idea is, is to, to push the idea forward uh, and not leave that novel insight on the table, essentially. I should also mention that individuals during this phase are better than teams. You know, the, the conventional wisdom is if you get different people in a room together, uh, solving a difficult problem, that you're likely to come up with some really good novel solutions. Uh, there's a large body of research that suggests that uh, teams are actually less creative than individuals when it comes to generating ideas. For example, mm -hmm. uh, a, a manager or creator can converse with multiple people, but best not to get them all in the, the room together coming up with ideas, uh, because we know there are lots of processes within teams that, that undermine that. Uh, social conformity, we want to belong, we're thinking I don't want to seem crazy, and so we, we don't share those ideas uh, in teams. So for elaboration, we need the support and encouragement. We need to get that from people that we know very well, uh, these creative confidants, if you will, and, and preferably on an individual one-on-one -on -one, uh, basis rather than in a team setting. Let's talk about the third phase, promotion. In this phase, you discuss the importance of engaging with network brokers. Can you share more about who network brokers are and how to identify them? So during this uh, promotion phase, influence and reach are critical due to the risk uh, associated with the idea and lack of precedent. So it's not always easy to get decision makers to understand or buy into an idea because of these inherent characteristics of uh, creative concepts or ideas. So at this point, uh, we want to seek network brokers. So these are essentially people who are linchpins connecting otherwise disconnected people across the organization. So they provide access to people 
and exposure. Uh, the other advantage of these uh, linchpins, if you will, is that they provide uh, a translation advantage. They're able to speak the language of various groups uh, beyond the creator. And of course, this is very important if one is trying to um, sell an idea and getting get support for the idea. Uh, so these uh, network brokers are key here. They can be difficult to identify. Sometimes we think about people in the formal organization structure who we see as being linchpins. So uh, maybe we're thinking, you know, our boss, you can get to some other bosses. I think when it comes to promotion, what we want to think about are those informal linchpins. So we, we might want to think about people who have uh, worked in a variety of departments uh, throughout the company. So that would be a good indicator that they probably have uh, network connections and relationships broadly throughout the organization. Uh, sometimes we can think about administrative staff as being really critical in this role. Uh, in the film industry, we see, for example, that the assistant uh, to the producer is often the key person um, providing exposure to a script. Uh, and there are lots of stories of uh, ways this sort of administrative person has been the one to give light to this idea uh, that ultimately, ultimately becomes a, a groundbreaking kind of project. So I think the informal linchpins are particularly useful mm -hmm. and being observant and, and understanding who's likely to have these kinds of uh, connections is very useful. What about the last phase? The fourth phase is implementation. What's the primary collaborative need there? And how do you bring an idea to market? Shared vision and trust is, is what's needed during uh, this phase. So it's important to think about this uh, collaborative journey as you know going from working individually uh, with one-on-one -on -one conversations that stimulate success in generation elaboration, for example, for Implementation and execution, what's really helpful at this point is a team. Not only helpful, but often necessary uh, when it comes to uh, execution. So it's really important for all of those involved with executing the idea to have a shared vision such that when challenges arise, that changes occur, everybody is working towards the same goal. Mm -hmm. Trust is critical as well because at this point, uh, individuals executing the idea need to rely on one another. So during this phase, uh, what we like to see is a, de a dense network of ties similar to a clique. Uh, so when we think about a clique, we're thinking about individuals who are inwardly focused, who are strongly connected, who have trust, who have a similar orientation, and who can bring each other in line if anyone sort of goes astray. And so that's really useful for uh, developing this kind of shared vision. So here we wanna think about a tightly connected group of individuals who are sort of marching towards the same North Star. Mm -hmm. And that provides uh, this shared vision that's important. Well Many business leaders out there understand the value of creativity and innovation and want to encourage it on their teams, but they don't know where to start. What are some tips and best practices that people can take right now in their workplace? The first is, may seem obvious, but is often difficult to achieve, and that's make it a priority. 
always ask for more alternatives to a problem than are initially presented. Uh, so one can think about the habit of saying, these are the ideas that are presented, give me one more or give me two more. We know the more alternatives that we have, the more likely that, we're be, that we are to see creativity. So make it a priority uh, throughout the company, uh, with your team, constantly asking for more creative ideas and pushing people to give one more alternative. The other I would say is beware of benchmarking. We often like to benchmark and know what our peers are doing or, and what others are doing. The problem with benchmarking is we anchor around what is versus what is possible. Mm -hmm. So be mindful of benchmarking as an anchor and uh, a lever or a pull that can make us less creative uh, than we might want to be. Uh, so those are two fundamental things that I would suggest. The other is to be collaboratively flexible. So for example, uh, brain writing is one technique that's very easy to think about that we might employ with a team. If we've got a team of individuals uh, gathered together, we might say, come to the meeting with your three top ideas to solve this problem before talking uh, to anyone else. And then use a round robin approach to get everybody to say their creative ideas. Because sometimes what happens uh, with that approach is we see these conformity processes happening where maybe some individuals don't share the ideas that they've come up with because we get excited about one or two ideas that some of our colleagues raised. So we can think about ebbing and flowing uh, if we must work in a team, but don't over rely on teams. We can think about creating a situation where teams can be helpful if necessary. So we can invite so-called strangers to the team. Uh, so think about opportunities to bring someone in on a team meeting who is not a typical member of that team. Uh, so for example, if we have a hiring situation and we have certain individuals part of the unit or department weighing in on that hiring decision, get someone from another unit uh, to weigh in on that decision-making session. Uh, newcomers to teams or strangers are great at asking those naive questions that push the team to better develop their solutions and come up with more uh, creative ideas. When we think about tangible examples of creativity and innovation, what companies and organizations are doing this well? This is a great question. What companies are doing this well? I'm guessing many will think of Apple, Google. You know, these are uh, the superstars when it comes to being creative. Amazon, I would put in that category as well. Those are well-known examples. At the same time, I think they could be uh, intimidating uh, for some of us and for some companies that uh, are working in areas where creativity and innovation isn't necessarily part of the uh, scope or vision per se. I like to think about you know companies that have been around for a long time because in order to be around for a long time and to thrive, that means there's a lot of creativity happening in terms of processes, uh, market decisions, and so on. So 3M, in my mind, is one of the originators of a lot of the processes that we talk about now in more contemporary companies that facilitate creativity and innovation. I mean, they were 
at the forefront of understanding the value of providing a little bit of time for people to work on what they want to work on uh, because we know people are very intrinsically motivated uh, when they can make decisions about how to spend their time. Uh, the other uh, thing that they've done for a long time and again are at the forefront of this is um, making it possible for workers to see the end result of their innovation. So sometimes we're quite detached, particularly if we're in these strategic decision-making sessions. We're not necessarily seeing the impact of our decisions on uh, those on the ground, if you will. And so thinking about processes to ensure that everyone making decisions is able to see the end result of those decisions is, is remarkable. So mm -hmm. 3M, I think, does this quite well. We also think about uh, these team-based organizations uh, where, for example, an originator comes up with an idea, and as the idea moves through the journey, he or she is able to assemble a team of people to work on that idea. Mm -hmm. So IDEO is a, a well-known design firm that, that comes to mind that is good at that. So uh, there are these essentially you know, opportunities for project leaders to essentially pitch a new product mm -hmm. uh, that is, is in the works, uh, a client product, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and then individuals get to essentially rank the ideas that they're most interested in working on. Mm -hmm. And so through that process, individuals are sorted onto teams to develop and work on that particular client problem. So again, there's not a fixed structure in place uh, where people work in their unit, they always work with those same people, but rather there's a flexibility of who's working on what and when, and there's movement from working individually, coming up with inspiration, mm -hmm. to execution through a team. Mm -hmm. So 3M, IDEO, those are some examples that come to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other I would say is General Electric. And I like to throw them out there because it's an old company, it's been around forever. You know, we often don't think about General Electric and uh, creative innovation. But again, I think when you look at their processes and when you look at what they've been doing over over many, many, many years, uh, the innovation and creativity that, that they have made in terms of transportation systems uh, is pretty remarkable. So I think we can look at those, you know, well-known, well-talked about currently examples of innovative and creative companies that, that anyone would probably think about. Uh, but we can also think about some of these uh, examples that might be more accessible to those who aren't working in these, you know, highly creative, high-tech kinds of environments. How has the pandemic impacted creativity and innovation? Have we seen a net increase or decrease in innovative pursuits? The pandemic and creativity is so fascinating to think about. There are so many dimensions and, and layers to that. On the one hand, the pandemic has required creative problem solving. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there is a, a company or an individual who hasn't had to think very creatively about how to tackle the changing requirements, how we work, where we work, who's at home, <laughs> family, work, balancing, all of that, I think, has required a great deal of creative problem solving and, and in a very uh, consistent and rapid 
way. Mm-hmm. I think many of us have experienced uh, whether you know we're thinking about this from the perspective of being a leader in an organization or someone trying to contribute and manage their family and their work. Uh, times where we thought, well, we had it together, we have a solution that seems to be working, and then there was another change that happened. And so we had to, to, to regroup and then come up with some more creative problem solving. The good news is I see that as uh, flexing the creative, our creative muscle. So we sort of get in this habit of thinking very broadly about problems and solving those problems in new and different ways. So that's a huge benefit. Uh, the more we're accustomed to doing that, the more we start thinking, okay, how can we solve this problem in a creative way? Mm-hmm. Part of that may have uh, fueled the great resignation as people then start thinking creatively and differently about their career paths and their work and what they do. So instead of going with inertia, which some would say would be the opposite of creativity, it, it, it triggered this muscle and way of thinking, well, you know, I've thought really creatively about various aspects of, of my work and my home and even solving problems within my company. Mm-hmm. And then we start thinking creatively about other areas as well. So in some ways, that's a great gift to our creative muscles. And I think it proves that we can think in very different novel ways to solve really complicated problems. So that's a huge benefit, if you will, of, of um, a, a very difficult uh, exogenous situation uh, that is the pandemic. I think some of the downsides of the pandemic, though, have to do with maintaining and building our networks and our relationships uh, specific to creativity and innovation, but also in general. So we are missing out on those chance conversations that we can have when we are seeing each other in person. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the, the chatter before and after the meeting that I think is very useful, even though that chatter and those conversations seem very uh, simple uh, and not critical to the objectives of the meeting, sometimes that's when we get uh, very useful tidbits or information mm-hmm. in a very efficient way. And so I, I, I worry that uh, our reliance on virtual meetings, uh, if we rely too much on those virtual meetings, could mean that we are uh, limiting the opportunity to have these casual chance conversations, perhaps with people that we don't speak to very often, but we happen to sit next to in a meeting and we chat with them before the meeting and we chat with them uh, after mm-hmm. the meeting. The, the third point I would make about uh, the pandemic and uh, creativity, innovation and networks is thinking systematically about who is more likely to work at home versus who's likely to come in the office. Mm -hmm. So if we have people lower in the organization, more likely to work at home, if we have people in the organization who are already uh, less embedded within the the social context of the organization, so again, they don't have that draw to come to work and they're very happy working at home. Uh, If we see more women choosing to work uh, at home, more parents choosing to work at home, then it, it could be that we end up with a systematic situation where some are less connected with the key decisions that are happening within the organizations, are, are in the organization, are 
not building those informal relationships or networks that are useful for creativity and innovation and also for uh, career progression. So mm -hmm. I think it's very multifaceted how the, the pandemic has influenced our relationship building, our social networks, and the possibility of creative and innovative ideas. Well, we you've talked about this a little bit, and we're we're kind of getting into it now as well. But as workplaces focus on combating the effects of the Great Resignation and keeping their employees safe, remote and hybrid arrangements have become commonplace. What steps can managers and teams take to encourage innovation in this new environment? There's a lot of thinking about how best to create these workplaces that include flexibility, yet also allow us to effectively get work done. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of models there. Uh, depending on one's work, we're either making these decisions for the organization, or if we have some flexibility, we're deciding for ourselves how we're going to work in this new flexible world. Either way, I think it's useful to think about in-person time where we're interacting with others and flexible time very differently. So, you know, with in-person time, we may have meetings that are scheduled where we're talking to other people. I think we need to think more broadly about that and think about in-person days as days where we're not productive from the perspective of you know executing our tasks and crossing things off our list mm -hmm. but these are in-person days so that means we're going to meetings uh, we're leaving time to chat with people in the hallways or in our offices we're not driven by i've got to get these five things done today but rather we know this is an in-person day so that means i've got three meetings and other time leaving time for these random encounters during these days I think is really important and thinking about structures to do that. I think being very intentional mm -hmm. about our work, not just that we're physically in the building and we're having meetings in person, mm -hmm. but how can we build in almost the mental space for these chance conversations. In your line of work, you must encounter many novel ideas and innovative individuals. What gives you hope for the future? The thing that gives me the, the most hope for the future is seeing the resilience and creativity coming out of the pandemic at a very micro level in terms of lots of decisions that have had to be made over time uh, to deal with all of the constraints and changes associated with the pandemic, but also at a more macro level. When we think about uh, the way restaurants, for example, were able to adapt uh, during a time that on the face of it would seem to put them out of business. Uh, but many were able to come up with very creative ways to stay open, to provide services. And I think that is very encouraging. And when we think about new businesses forming, coming out of the, the pandemic, new ideas. I think that's very encouraging. And although the, the so-called great resignation causes a lot of uh, anxiety for those hiring uh, and managing people, from an individual level, it's quite exciting to think about people pushing themselves in new directions and really thinking creatively, not only about 
what they want to do, uh, but how they want to do it, I think is is very encouraging. It would be wonderful to see a new creative burst uh, coming out of this pandemic situation that cuts across all levels and decisions. Jill is a professor of organization and management at Guizueta Business School. She joined today to discuss creativity and innovation, its importance in economic growth and organizational success, and the journey of an idea from mind to marketplace. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Melanie. I've enjoyed being here. Very much enjoyed the conversation. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.